Cliffcentral.com. Another episode of the Renegade Report. Good afternoon, Ramon. Good morning, good evening, whenever you're listening uh, to this. Yes, good morning, Jonathan. All is well? Uh, all is good, all is good, you know. The race war of 2016 continues outside, people dying in the streets, of course. Indeed. I have lunch in the CBD quite often, and um, I bought a, a Kevlar bulletproof vest the other day, just in case. Uh, that to, of course, go with your AK-47, to, you know, as a personal protective device. You're not supposed to say that, but uh, my, my bodyguard does, though. Yeah, well, we all have one. That's part of our white privilege. Anyway, we have a guest today whom he doesn't know it yet, but we wanted him right at the beginning when we wanted to start the podcast as a potential guest. Yeah, and we finally got him. We got him on the show. Um, I'm not going to give you too much of an intro as a bio because I want you to talk uh, about yourself. So um, our guest is from the Free Market Foundation. He is... uh, well known, I would assume, to many people uh, involved in the South African political landscape for a very long time, Mr. Leon Lowe. It's a pleasure to be with you, Jonathan and Raymond. Right. Well, thank you so much for joining us, Leon. So, um, to, to many people might be surprised that you were actually a Marxist in your youth. Um, I was indeed. I started off actually living in a right-wing uh, pro-apartheid uh, conservative community of Potsdam, the Doppers as they would be called in Afrikaans. And uh, then my father took the enlightened view that in order to be uh, successful in the world, you need to be Engelsmachtig, you need to be able to speak English. So he sent us to English primary schools, high schools, and eventually university. And at Witts University, I got converted to Marxism. Because I became anti-apartheid, and being anti-apartheid meant you were on the left, and the more anti you were, the more left you were, and that meant I was a Marxist. And at the time, uh, during those brief years, the Freedom Charter, for example, was regarded by the real left, the Marxist left intellectuals, as being a sellout to conservatives and capitalism and neoliberalism. So it's fascinating to me now that that same document is presumed somehow to be on the left, and it seems to me people don't actually bother to read it, uh, and they will see that it's a complete misconception of what it actually says. But I do understand that you were an informed Marxist. I mean, you actually read Marx. And oh, yes, yes, yes. I did. I did. I was one of the few people who actually bothered to read the stuff you say you believe in. Um, few people ever do that. Funny thing that. Yes, they, 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 prefer, they, they profess to be believers in this or that. And when you probe, you find they actually haven't read the standard literature in whatever ideology they say they support. But yes, I did read Marx. It was very difficult, but also very interesting because some of the more obscure works of Marx were quite interesting. For example, his writings on education pointed out that private education was better than government education. And uh, he coined the phrase virtually verbatim that there's no such thing as a free lunch. He pointed out there is no such thing as free education. So interesting. And um, I was, yes, an informed Marxist and uh, read about it and was troubled by it when I realized that it meant you couldn't have informal traders on the streets of Johannesburg who seemed to me to be in need of protection and defense from the Leviathan state. So, according to, to my research, so there was a an action that you saw that, that made you change your mind about <clears throat> about Marxism. Yes, uh, my rejection of the intellectual um, voluminous writings of and on Marxism. Most people who say they're Marxists have read stuff people say is Marxism and not Marx in the original. But that aside... Uh, the event was not anything philosophical or intellectual. It's not because I discovered and read Ayn Rand or Friedrich Hayek or von Mises or anything like that, or more recently Thomas Sowell, although he was then and around and writing, then himself, by the way, at that time a socialist. Uh, but uh, 
I walked out of my office where I was a legal clerk and saw a street vendor lady who sat on the sidewalk on the corner of Bree and Rissick Street in Johannesburg uh, get up and run away around the corner and leave her bowl of fr- basket of fruit and her money lying there and dashed off in terrible fright and I couldn't understand. I looked around and I saw a police vehicle pull up and two police got out and one kicked her basket and the fruit went rolling across the road, picked up her money and put it in his pocket and the other one ran around the corner to catch her, which he did, dragged her back and they bundled her into the back of the police van. I was so outraged that I went down to the police station and remonstrated with them and they met, interestingly, another leftist, uh, Lawrence Mavundler, who is now head of NAFCOC, president of NAFCOC, until recently president of the Black Business Council, who was also there uh, in, in, in resistance to the violation of street traders' rights. And we were both lefties at the time and met each other, and we both now are pro-market and free-market liberals in his case. Uh, I'm, I'm a more of a radical anarchist or purist. I don't think, I don't call it radical. I just, I'm just not very good at contradictions. I like consistency. And um, so, yes, and then I thought to myself, but hold on a sec, this woman under Marxist and socialist ideology would not be allowed harmlessly to sit on the side of the road and sell peaches and oranges to people passing by. And that didn't make any sense to me. And I realized that she is actually the epitome of free market capitalism. And that is actually what started my conversion. I then started thinking about the fact that socialism is against the poor and against the rights of the poor and more typically defends the rights of the rich in big supermarkets and banks and uh, so on. And so the irony is I became a free market capitalist by virtue of being concerned about the most vulnerable, harm, you know, harmed, violated people in society. Not only, of course, the street trader lady, but her customers, the poorest of the poor, who want to buy one cigarette or one sweet or one um, peach or whatever it is and uh, and these are the people who converted me to seeing the light as it were and that you know, I drifted away slowly over a slow period of about five or six years away from being a Marxist so I mean it's interesting because you're turning what we're told on, it, on its, its head and what I say about what it's told what we're told is in the sort of public sort of space we're told you know capitalism is against the poor and uh, and capitalism is the result of all we have all these evils is poverty etc is the resu- result of this the, the facts aren't aren't uh, don't support that obviously and we have a much better world as a result of capitalism but why do you think that still that sort of view still sort of pervades well, Jonathan, the problem is the word capitalism is ambiguous and means close to anything. It can mean Nazism, apartheid. It can mean even they now call Putin a capitalist. And it can mean sort of anything, which is why we are the free market foundation, because nobody can call apartheid a free market. So people say it was capitalism, but they can't say it was a free market or they can't say it was liberal. So the word capitalism, but let's assume capitalism means uh, basically market economy with a relatively uh, high degree of ownership being in private hands and so on. If we we take a sort of standard economics or textbook definition. Uh, And then the idea that it's anti-poor is really quite bizarre because there's something the poor know that the intellectuals don't which is the best place to be poor is under capitalism because they uh, risk their lives and often lose their lives trying to flee from socialist places to capitalist places. They all want to get in to America. You don't have the American poor fleeing to Cuba. You never had the East German poor fleeing, to, uh, the West German poor fleeing to to East Germany. You had it the other way around, and now you do not have the poor people of South Korea fleeing into North Korea. So the one direction and only one direction in which the poor of the world want to go is from places that are less capitalistic to places that are more capitalistic, or. Uh, more socialistic to places that are more libertarian or free market or classical liberal or the lovely French word dirigiste, which means directed, places that are less directed 
are the places to which the poor want to go. And that is interestingly typically as illegal immigrants where they will get no, none of the welfare. They, all they want to do is be left alone in capitalist places because that's the best place to be poor. And to be left alone because, well, yes. with, with freedoms you can make successes. I think that's the sort of, uh, bottom line strategy of America, mm. really. Um, and that whole concept of the American dream. But even if, if I may say, success doesn't necessarily mean material success. Um, they, they just might enjoy being there more, even if they are beggars or bums or, you know, um, uh, the, the the beggars on Park Avenue in New York, the street bums. They they would rather be there mm. than in Cuba or North Korea or some socialist mm. place, even if they're not materially well off. Yeah, well, being free and poor is probably better than being sort of uh, under some sort of rule and dictated to. Yes, and under some sort of nice nanny house. state that decides to look after you against your will. Yeah. Um, so you, you, uh, you have this sort of change from the Marxist side of things. Uh, you come to more of a libertarian kind of view, and the Free Market Foundation starts up, uh, and from what I've read, gets quite a bit of tr good traction in the late 70s. Um, tell us a little bit about the organization and how it ends up actually being involved in CODESA and, uh, and yourself being involved in that process, as well as the involvement you had in drafting our constitution. Yes, uh, the Free Market Foundation was set up by some very prominent people at the time. The seed funding was put up by Anton Rupert and Harry Oppenheimer at the time, the heads of the, you know, the, the doyen of Afrikaner and English or Jewish business in South Africa. And they took the view, they were both anti-apartheid. Now you have this strange rhetoric that's taking place that the Ruperts are somehow, you know, supporters of white privilege. So quite the opposite. They, they were always anti-apartheid, never supported the Bruderbund, never supported the National Party. And uh, they were willing to put up the Free Market Foundation to promote economic freedom. Now, the worst thing about apartheid was not, for example, the prohibition on mixed marriage. My own sister is in a mixed marriage. And, uh, so, but, and that was bad and evil and they had to go to Swaziland in order to lawfully marry. But that, that was not the issue. The, the real evil of apartheid was the economics of it. The denial of black people to be able to take jobs, to form companies, to own land, to sell their labor freely, to sell products and services freely. And the damage done that we to this day um, debate about how to resolve uh, was economic, was um, the material damage, psychological damage, political rights, all of those were important, but they didn't make a big difference to the quality of life. That was the economics of it. So the idea was to have an institute, a think tank, that would pr advance the economic arguments for getting rid of apartheid. And they were actually much more compelling. In other words, if you go to a white supremacist, mainly Afrikaner, South African in the 1960s and 70s, and say, do you realize how bad apartheid is for you? Uh, you are not allowed to let your property, you are not allowed to buy from, trade with, whatever. Uh, I did some calculations that pointed out that the poorest white people on the planet outside of the communist bloc uh, were white Afrikaners. Uh, if two Dutch brothers uh, decided one to stay in Holland, one to immigrate to South Africa, their descendants who immigrated to South Africa and lived with apartheid would have been poorer materially and less free than the ones who stayed in Holland. So apartheid was not win-lose. People talk about white people as being beneficiaries of apartheid. That's because they make mm. the false assumption that if it's bad for blacks, it must be good for whites. No, quite the opposite. It was lose-lose. Everyone was worse off. Black people were simply more worse off, if you'll excuse the bad English, than white South Africans. The wealthiest white South Africans were the ones who had no political power at all, the Jews, uh, and then uh, the Anglo-Saxons, and then Asian, Indian South Africans, um, mm. even despite the racially discriminatory laws, had higher per capita incomes and living standards than the perpetrators of apartheid. So what we did is we went around explaining to Afrikaner apartheid supporters that it was bad for them and for their own interests they should actually get rid of it 
And that got us into the political mainstream and limelight. Uh, I was invited by the old National Party even to run as a candidate for them on this platform in the 1970s, 1980s. And uh, they offered me a safe seat and they said I was free to go around saying apartheid is bad for white Afrikaner supremacists. <laughs> you didn't take them up on the offer? No, I didn't. Uh, I've been offered positions in pretty much all the political parties and turned them all down because I, if I like them enough to run for them, I would like them too much to inflict me on them. But that is something that is often forgotten. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, yeah, Apollo was a highly national socialistic state. Um, and it's interesting that even... Post-apartheid, I mean, whites are doing a lot better, but we know why. I mean, mm. they, had, they were better educated. They already had the networks and the and the wealth at the, um, before before ninety four. So at Codessa, I have it through anecdote that that you are a primary reason why there are property rights in the constitution. Yes, uh, I think it's probably fair to say that but for my colleague Temba Nolichungu and me, there would be no property rights clause in the Constitution. The final draft agreed to at Arniston between the negotiating parties had no property rights clause. Uh, we uh, pulled out the panic button and uh, went and met with people like Sora Ramaphosa and Aledi Pondor and others in the ANC and persuaded them of a very simple argument, actually. We said, black people have been denied property rights. Now, do you really want a future in South Africa in which black people do not have property rights? That seemed crazy. That seemed like it would be a hollow victory. And we persuaded them this was not some measure to protect white privilege and white property, but an essential requirement of black South Africans that they never again have their property rights violated. We now have signed yesterday or today or soon anyway by the president a new expropriation bill which will have the effect of a massive erosion again of South African property rights, put black South Africans back roughly where they were under apartheid, where the government has the power to simply seize their property and not co not compensate them and have forced resettlements. This is what black South Africans now face. Mm. And it's all in the rhetoric of redistributing white land, and the land they want to redistribute is a few white farms, which will make uh, no difference whatsoever to the average black South African, in fact, make them worse off for all sorts of reasons. And so uh, we persuaded uh, the ANC's hierarchy to put a property rights clause in. They then said to us we would have to run around literally the corridors of parliament to all the other parties and persuade them to agree, and that included people like the PAC and the ZAPO and, uh, of course, the IFP and the, then the Progressive Federal Party, now the DA and others. We did that. Literally, I think it was the day, I might have this technically wrong, but it was the day before, if not the day on, the Constitution was tabled in Parliament for approval, the property rights clause was added. And that was a direct result of us. Without us, it wouldn't have happened. And there's some other clauses we were largely instrumental to, such as the administrative justice clause, which says that all administrative action must be fair and reasonable. And um, and uh, clauses like this would not have been there without us, or they would have been much less vigorous than they are. So, from my side, uh, the ANZ at the time, I mean, now that, that they're fairly, I would argue, a fairly conservative party now. Mm. Uh, economically, they left, but they, you know, morally and psychologically, quite conservative. But at the time, were they highly socialist? Were they? <clears throat> did they really intend to? to put through this constitution without any property rights because they didn't want property rights or they forgot about property rights or they didn't understand property rights? Uh, do you know, have a bit more insight into that? Yes. Firstly, uh, when I was a courier for the ANC and uh, very much involved with the ANC, the Winnie Mandela football team, uh, the committee of 10, and Tata Mutlana, the chairman, was a good friend of ours, and uh, the Mandelas before... Uh, Nelson Mandela was released Winnie Mandela would be a regular house guest of ours we of hers and uh, her daughter and our daughter were best friends Zolika and so on and so forth so sorry her granddaughter so um, Zinzi's daughter 
So we were very close to the ANC. Uh, Johnny Marcatini recommended the title. He was the ANC representative in New York, the title for one of our books that my wife and I wrote called Let the People Govern. So we were close, and we were I was a courier for the ANC, so close to them. And the ANC then was very, very clearly a conservative party. Uh, Mandela said it was for a free market. Uh, Tambo said it believed in capitalism. And the distinction was made very clearly between the alliance partners. The three partners were aligned against a common enemy, but they didn't have a common ideology. That is the Kasatu Trade Union Movement and the South African Communist Party. And um, Mandela even said at the launch of the Communist Party at Soccer City that although the ANC and the Communist Party have opposing ideologies were the words he actually said, although the written text doesn't put it quite that bluntly. It says they have different perspectives or some such sort of watered-down phrase in the written version that's on the ANC website. But he made it very clear, and everyone was very clear, that the ANC was a conservative party, was a centrist party, was not left or right, was not anti or pro-capitalist. And what happened with the property rights clause in the Constitution was um, was that the negotiating parties got themselves thoroughly confused about what property rights are because the white parties all wanted strong property rights protection. As it now says, nobody may be deprived of property without compensation, the implication being that it protects people who already have it. Whereas we wanted the clause to say everyone has the right to acquire property. Different statement. That would be more pro-black. Unfortunately, we never succeeded in getting that precise wording. So now it protects only people who already have property. That was because it was seen as a white versus black issue. And this was therefore seen as some sort of concession to white people to protect what they have rather than what it should be seen is to protect what black people would in due course have and in, and to give them the right to acquire it. That was the, the clause was not ideal, but certainly better than nothing. Uh, so with regards to this land expropriation bill, uh, do you think it's unconstitutional? I would say it is probably. You know, it's very rare to be constitutionally and jurisprudentially technical that an entire bill is unconstitutional. Provisions, often just one word, um, might be unconstitutional. And I think core provisions in it would definitely be unconstitutional. Although we have this horrendous ruling made about mineral rights there where the constitutional court ruled bizarrely that if the state takes assets as a custodian as opposed to an owner, that somehow this is not depriving you of property. So mineral rights could be seized without compensation because the state would be the custodian. The fact is that it now leases these out commercially, therefore it's clearly property. And it was valued, mineral rights were valued at something like 60 billion rand or whatever in mining house balance sheets. So there has been this ghastly constitutional court judgment that says property isn't property and deprivation isn't deprivation. And uh, so this expropriation bill might be able to pass constitutional muster by virtue of that completely outrageous ruling, which I think anyone who can understand English will realize that it is uh, in conflict with the property rights clause. Is it it sometimes maybe that... You know, in, in that instance, perhaps the Constitutional Court kind of ends up siding um, with almost a public sentiment um, over what makes sense. Uh, you know, we've got this, you, you, you referred to it earlier, this, this whole thing of um, land. You know, uh, one of the political parties makes a, makes a big deal about land and giving back land and, and all the rest of it. Uh, we've discussed on the show before, but you're welcome to go into it. Uh, that that'll actually make very little difference, as you alluded to as well. Um, is that uh, is 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 that a possibility? That yes, uh, there's no doubt. Uh, judges are human beings, and they are influenced by what they think is firstly politically popular and socially popular, and secondly, of course, by their own beliefs and their own personal ideologies. So they will try to read into the law something consistent with what they would like the law to say. Now, that's just normal human behavior. You would do the same, I'm Mm. sure, if you were a judge or a magistrate. So Mm. 
this isn't a distinctively bad thing about the Constitutional Court. It is unfortunate, uh, and it has made some judgments that seem to be really quite excessively uh, twisting and bending and wriggling as far as possible to get an outcome they want. Uh, But on the question of black access to land, the word property usually means land, but of course in the law it means everything, everything you own, every possession, your house, your car, your furniture, your shares, whatever it might be, are all subject to this confiscation and expropriation and seizure without full compensation by government in this new act. But um, this is a, the real victims here, as usual, strangely enough, of bad law, are not white South Africans. White South Africans are all apoplectic about this, but in fact it probably will affect very, very few, uh, maybe a handful of farmers, because uh, the fraud is perpetrated on black South Africans. Uh, if you seize every single white-owned commercial farm, Uh, No one knows really how many there are because many of them are separate pieces of farmland farmed as one farm, but it's probably something like 30,000. And you redistribute them to black South Africans. 30,000 out of 45 million black South Africans will get a piece of land. And then it will be a commercial farm which is scarcely viable. Some are, some aren't, some are marginal. Uh, but the overwhelming majority of black South Africans want to and do live in towns, villages, and cities. They're urban. And uh, there they live with no property rights at all under the old apartheid law whereby they are wards of and tenants of the government. The government allocates land, and if they're not found in the land to which the government allocated the people, uh, then the land is seized and repossessed. And Black South Africans are being cheated and defrauded on a, on a spectacular scale. And because this is cast as a white versus black issue, uh, very few people realize that the real victims of all of this are black South Africans. We are sitting here now, I don't know what it is, about a kilometer or whatever from uh, Alexandra Township. Something like that. Uh, which was expropriated under apartheid without significant compensation. There was some sort of token compensation in 1968. And to this day, the land is owned by the Joburg City Council. The black people living there are not their landowners, and uh, they are as deprived as they were under apartheid. Mm. And uh, at no, no need to redistribute any white farm at all. All you have to do is give them back the deed, the land, which was wrongly seized in the first place. Now, this is true of probably 7 to 8 million black South African households mm. which live well, on R- land. RDP housing is the same problem. RDP housing is subject to this ridiculous uh, preemptive clause which is patronizing and insulting and uh, f- over 50% everywhere and as much as 90% in some places have illegally sold their land. In other words, black South Africans to this day live under house arrest. Mm. If you are not found where you were put uh, by the Leviathan state, <laughs> Uh, which now has a black skin instead of a white skin, but does exactly the same thing, but treats I, blacks the same way. It's horrific. You hear someone like Rudy Dereco saying, saying, uh, you know, well, the the state built the RDP houses, so it only makes sense that they keep the title deeds. Well, the state firstly has no money. Uh, it was built with money taken from ordinary South Africans. But nonetheless, uh, she might say that Rudy Klabi now, um, she might say Apologies. that, but she obviously doesn't understand the issue at all. I'm sorry to say, bright as she is, but she doesn't get the point, which is that those properties are in fact trading illegally in the black market in both senses of the word. Is that really what she wants for black South Africans? Uh, that rhetoric, even if it made any sense at all, which it doesn't, has no relevance to the real world out there of ordinary black South Africans who in fact let and buy and sell and trade this land whether or not the government wants them to and whether or not there's a preemptive clause. So what is the reasons for for the state being the ward of so many people? This is about power, I would assume. It's about control of of people and saying we have this, uh, you know, you can live here but just know that if you do something wrong, we can, you know, throw you out or or it's just about power at the end of the day it is yes remember the the slogan in the struggle was a mandla which means power 
very few people know what the Zulu or the vernacular or the Kosa or the Nguni word is for freedom. Um, I wonder if you do, and you're unusually well-informed people. And uh, the answer is in Kululeko. So what it was was a struggle for power, and people like my colleague Temba Nolachungu, who was coordinator of the armed struggle in the West Cape, and I used to actually try and encourage people to have a struggle for freedom. It was not a struggle for freedom. It was a struggle to take over the power of the apartheid regime, a crime against humanity, and all that was done was to change the people who administer that system, and they do it pretty much the same to this day as the apartheid regime did it. The ghost of Furwurt walks around Tuli House with a big smile on his face saying, if I knew the ANC would implement my policies, I would have handed over power long ago. Are you referring to like the ed- education system and things like that? I mean, I do, I w- I'm very loath to say you know, the ANC is the same as the Nats. I mean, we do have a constitution. There is a semblance of democracy. I don't think we actually have one. But they're certainly not doing themselves any favors by trying to be the custodians of of citizens. No, you're absolutely right. On the contrary, there has been a huge improvement in the quality of life, uh, psychologically, politically, ideologically, socially, emotionally, economically, for black South Africans. So let's get that out. And if I say that they do many things, that they seized power, it doesn't mean that they use that power in exactly the same way as the Nats did. But we do have, for example, race classification and race discrimination on the statute book. It's obligatory. And uh, so there are many things that are hauntingly similar to the way the Nats did them because it was about taking over their power. But many, many things are better. That is absolutely for sure, and I don't want to deny that. On the contrary, I'm one of the people who points out that the emergence, for example, of six million people in the black, so-called black middle class is a spectacular rise in the living standards of the average black South African. GDP average has gone up uh, per capita substantially. Uh, the Gini coefficient which people think doesn't actually, but they think it measures inequality, has gone up. And that's a result of the rise of the living standards of many black South Africans that have brought about inequality for a good reason, you see. People think inequality means some people getting poorer. No, it means some people getting richer, which is what you want. So, no, but everyone wants power. Most people want power, and they are no different. And the only thing that will constrain the use and abuse of the power by the ANC or any other political formation uh, will be a constitution and civil action and what we're doing right now, people promoting uh, freedom and and promoting restraints on those in power, so-called. They shouldn't be in power. They should not have any power at all. They should be governing, meaning implementing uh, and protecting the freedoms that have been gained. And unfortunately, mm. they set about, like all politicians, to erode freedom as much as they can get away with. Yeah, so, I mean, government should be essentially an administrative process, which is... Yes, know. yes. And, and uh, we've spent the last 15 years eroding that, really, because mm. we started off quite well, uh, and um, slowly we've uh, gone off the press freedom... Uh, we've got going off the land and uh, property rights now. Um, why do you think that is? Is it? Is it? Uh, you know, uh, there's lots of theories. Uh, I'm interested to hear yours, really. Well, as whoever the philosopher was who said the price of freedom is eternal vigilance, is absolutely correct. You need vigilance. You need organisations like the Free Market Foundation, Institute of Race Relations. Uh, Center for Development and Enterprise, you need political activists and parties, you need people broadcasting and in the media, you need um, journalists who understand it, and uh, civil society and intellectuals. Uh, so yes, we we this is a this is an endless battle of the forces of good versus the forces of evil, uh, and government. If they, to the extent there is a government, I'm not one of those people that's convinced there should even be one. But nonetheless, since that seems to be something that's going to be around for a long time, at least let the government be something that that protects people, protects their rights, protects their freedom. 
and does a few other things like you know looking after the environment and providing some infrastructure mm. and so on. Uh, but but even those, it should outsource everything. It should outsource education and healthcare, and it outsources road construction, building construction, motor vehicles. It doesn't try and make its own computers. It doesn't try and make the clothes that civil servants wear. Mm. So why, why doesn't it use the same logic for everything else it does? It's just contract in competitive, efficient private supply. Okay, so I think I I hear all of those things. I I just want to get to that last sort of 10 years of decay. Mm. Is that protecting one man, essentially? Is that that what we're we're at now? No, I don't think so. Um, I I think this uh, binary world in which you have good and evil, uh, you have, you know, this heroic theory of history, as historians would call it, that history is about one person, uh, I, it's not clear to me at all that Zuma is a cause. He might be a consequence, just as it wasn't clear to me that Thatcher was a cause or Reagan was a cause or Obama is a cause. They could be consequences. They could be symptoms of a climate of opinion. So I think no. I think it's more than than President Zuma, and I think President Zuma is probably blamed uh, for a lot that shouldn't be laid at his doorstep. Yeah, well, going on about cause, I mean, that's why the rise of Donald Trump is so interesting for some. Mm. I mean, I, I don't care too much about him. I hope he wins just for, just for the sake of uh, fun. Comic relief. Yeah, just comic <laughs> relief and fun. But, I mean, Donald Trump was created by, by people. He's a reaction to yes. a lot of things as well. Yes, I think he's a symptom, not a cause. Yeah. I, I agree with that entirely. Yeah. And I want to talk to you about, about the ANC at the moment. And do you think the state, Represents the citizens, or are we having what you what I would call the 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 state is a reflection of the citizens. So, for example, I'm, I'm against voting in principle because I'm, I'm like you. The state shouldn't exist. Mm. The market can, can take care of most things. Mm. But now that the state does exist, are we seeing a reflection of voters in the state in the ANC, for example? Um. So, what is your view on that? Yes, uh, uh, yes, and no. Um, the important thing about the state is the state is simply a group of people. It's a cabal of people, or a conspiracy of people, or it's uh, it's just an, it's it's a group of people who who wield and enjoy power and hold on to it as best they can, and try in order to do so have to try to get in a democracy and in a. Rep- Republican democracy, in fact, a federal Republican democracy, which is what we are technically, although few people seem to realize that, what they have to do is they have to persuade as many people as possible to vote for them. And to that extent, you have to try to do at least enough good for the people to think you're worth voting for. However, I should make this point. The ANC has not been a normal political party and is now morphing into one. The ANC has been more of a cultural and social phenomenon. And to say 10, 15, 20 years ago you support the ANC or you're a member of the ANC said almost nothing about your values or your beliefs or ideology. You could have been a libertarian. You could have been a communist. You could have been a traditional tribalist. You could have been conservative, liberal, radical, whatever, and still been a member, a loyal member of the ANC, as many people we know have been. And uh, so saying you are the ANC or a member of the ANC, to me, was a little like saying you're Jewish. You see, if somebody says, I'm Jewish, it actually tells you very little about them, and yet it tells you a lot about them. Uh, um, some of my best friends are not just Jews. That's not the point. They are atheist Jews, and they are atheist Jews who eat bacon and so on and so forth, and yet... They are very conspicuously Jewish. They regard themselves as Jewish. And if I tell you you my friend Terry is a Jew and my other friend Perry happens to have a similar name, is a Jew, you know something about, you know I'm saying something meaningful. But that hasn't told you whether they eat bacon or whether they uh, are, whether they're atheists or anything. So the answer is if you said you're ANC, it actually meant something and yet close to nothing. That's changing. And in South Africa's undergoing, I think, a very optimistic maturing of democracy. In other words, it's becoming an actual democracy where it is becoming a real political party, and that means the alliance will break up. I don't think it can exist when the ANC is a political party as opposed to a cultural phenomenon. 
and uh, then it will have to be truly political. And, pe- and black South Africans in particular will start actually having to think about who to vote for. The only democratized South Africans until now, in my opinion, have been the Asians or Indians and the coloreds who actually in each election have actually thought about who to vote for. White people, over 90%, have simply gone and voted DA. Black people, over 90%, simply gone and voted ANC. That vote was cast in stone. That's no longer true for black people. I think white people are now the least democratized community in South Africa. They will go and vote DA without thinking Hmm. and without choosing. But black, colored, and Indian South Africans are now probably in this election for the first time sitting at home thinking, who's going to get my vote this time? It's no longer what it was, and this is the ANC becoming, at last, a political party. Although what you've described is a pro- probably a loss of a strength, um, having to convert from this sort of uh, all-meaning uh, idea to a political party, which is actually responsible for specific ideas. A huge loss of a strength. The ANC had a very easy ride, and, and now will actually have to fight real political fights, formulate real policies, go and sell them to real people who may or may not choose them. And this is the first time that it's going to be faced in this general election. It almost did with COPE. COPE almost brought about democracy in South Africa, real democracy, but but Mm. then its internal fights destroyed it. So now maybe thanks to the EFF, thanks to the rise of the DA, and thanks to the the internal um, uh, strife and conflict within the alliance, particularly the labor movement, uh, but also the political formations, uh, the, we are now – and this is why, by the way, I'm optimistic. I think that in order to go through this process has to be cathartic, has to be painful. It's long overdue, should have happened in '94, and I think the sooner it happens, the better, and I'm very bullish about the, the current developments in South Africa. Well, I mean, it is my theory that the ANC will actually come out much stronger the more power it loses. It has to consolidate its policies and its views, and it has to go to the markets and yeah, sell them. And get rid of these ridiculous alliance partners, which have been yeah. a millstone around its neck. I don't know why they didn't realize that they didn't need Kusatu, and, and they've well, given well, away a third or a half of all the prominent positions to the SACP. That's been their biggest... Uh, crazy, sort of, crazy yeah. political judgment in my view, but then I guess that's why I'm not a political scientist, because it seems crazy to me. But our previous guest, who was called Umduduzi, he said that the greatest mistake the ANC made was getting into alliance with the SACP in the 40s. Yes. And that delayed independence for, for possibly for decades. And you can huge. understand why during the period of the Cold War, right? As soon as Vernon Moore, mm. I mean, as soon as the Soviet Union fell, apartheid could not be supported under any no. economic or ideological reasons from other countries. Yes, I think he's absolutely right. I think the SACP uh, brought money. That's essentially all they needed them for was to get the money. The PAC didn't form an alliance with the SACP, so it didn't get funded properly. A little bit from China and Libya and a few others, but the ANC through the SACP got itself funded. And at the launch of the SACP in Soccer City after it was unbanned, Mandela actually said, uh, strangely, that they wouldn't ban the Communist Party. And I even thought that the need to say it was odd uh, because, he said, it had been a loyal supporter of the ANC without trying to influence the ANC ideologically. Uh, I happen to know Mandela very well personally and spent many hours in conversation with him, so... But I don't want to say what someone said when they're no longer there to to verify Mm. or deny it. But nonetheless, I had some insight into how he saw the SACP and uh, why they maintained this SACP alliance. It was a kind of loyalty, a kind of like they supported us. We now owe it to them to keep them in the alliance. But Mm. to give away pretty much all of the prominent positions that the ANC had at its disposal was really weird. I mean, it's one thing to keep them in an alliance and to give them a few positions, you know, I don't know, Minister of Sport and Recreation or something. Yeah, give, give, them, uh, yeah, 
give them arts and culture or something like that, but to give traded industry education, education, education. finance, and it so, is so that is very oh, finance. Even nuts, now, oh, nuts. Is, I mean, yeah. Yeah. well, and 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 Alec Irwin, who was a member of the SACP, although probably never an, uh, himself a communist. We need to understand that a lot of people like Mbeki, who joined the ANC, did explain privately, and I think in many cases publicly, they did so because it was expedient, not because it was the ideology. So the SACP had a lot of traction during the struggle, even though it had no significant membership, no support. And the ANC stuck to them through thick and thin against the odds. It's, it's, I think that it's now clear that that was a, that was a mistake. And uh, not many people can now still think that that was a wise thing to do after 94. Um, and th- that alliance seems now to be increasingly shaky, and the sooner it breaks up, the better. You, you mentioned the PAC. Um, what, what, you know, they got sort of thrown under the bus of, of trans- uh, well, mm. the transformation from the sort of old state to the new one. Um, any further sort of insights on that? Because they're kind of lost in history. Yes, it's quite sad, actually. Uh, we in the free market movement and liber- liberals and, and white libertarians uh, actually qu- quite liked the, the Africanist movements, the PAC and even Azapo. We were very friendly with them. Uh, many of them were entrepreneurs and pro-market People don't realize that now. They perceived as having been to the left of the ANC. Now, this is a very strange interpretation of the idea of black consciousness, which had as its immense virtue the belief that black people are worthy and should walk tall and be proud of their uh, their race. And uh, Steve Biko and others made it clear that what they wanted was racial equality. And they had confidence in black people and could achieve for themselves. What they could achieve for themselves. And that was an immense virtue. And that unfortunately got lost. The alliance movement, the ANC, um, and uh, they tended to be more patronizing. To this day, they are of the belief that black people really can't do anything for themselves. Very much the opposite of the PAC approach. Now, to give you a simple example, if you go to the government's housing website, uh, you will see that the amount of housing black people have amounts, according to the government, to the housing it has provided for black people. Uh, yet the majority of housing being registered in the deeds registry bought on the open market at the moment is black people. So it just does not acknowledge that a black person can buy their own house, can educate 70%, 60 to 70% of all children in private schools mm. are now black. So the, 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 the PAC, the Africanists, would see that as correct, as this is what black people do and do do and should and can do. The charterists, the ANC types, mm. uh, think of black people in an extraordinarily insulting and they demeaning way. They constantly. can do handouts. They can A do BE is that, isn't it? Everything that they record. In, if you look, for example, at the twenty-year review published by the presidency, which is statistical stuff about the transformation in South Africa, you'll see that every thing that black people have benefited from is something that was done for them. There is no acknowledgement that black people have embraced their liberty and advanced in leaps and bounds at their own initiative by their own freedom. Uh, This uh, six, six, six and a half million black middle class people, apparently 80 to 90 percent of them are in the private sector. So these are just ordinary people, artisans, business people, lawyers, accountants, professionals, doctors, and so on, earning a normal living in a normal society. And the and unfortunately, the leftists pretend they don't exist, which is w- would be very different under the PAC. That is what is what is frustrating. I mean, I'm I'm quite on Twitter I say a lot of things and, and get attacked often for being called a racist and all that but all, all the data all the all the metrics we use show that black people want to be free and pursue their own interests no mm. matter what they're not interested in handouts or or things like that so also like also with them with the so-called race war at the moment mm. uh, there's you know a few people on Facebook you know said the k-word and now there's a race war going on but most black people don't know about it or don't care about it whatsoever. It's deeply patronizing for a lot of intellectuals and people in power to say, 
uh, you know, black people must stop. Um, how can I explain? They must stop, you know, accepting that they are second class citizens, but they're not second class citizens. The stats show that they are doing rather well, except for the underclass, which unfortunately is a separate issue. Yeah, let me just be very clear about the question of skin color. For me, skin color is about as relevant as hair color or eye color. And when I have discussions, people don't say to me, you know, blue-eyed people have more self-esteem or, you know, do better economically or people with red hair, this or brown hair, that or raven hair, the next thing or curly hair versus straight hair or whatever. So uh, black people think this or black people think that immediately makes me not just uncomfortable. I just think it's a silly way to think. Black people, human beings... Uh, I've always filled in where I'm asked what race I am. I've always put human. And uh, if since the old apartheid days, if I put anything at all. But nonetheless, human beings all want essentially the same thing. They want to be comfortable and they don't want pain and they want to be entertained and they want to feel loved and they want to be left alone and they want to have better material conditions. And I don't think to add a prefix like white people or black people or colored people or short people or tall people or blonde people or brunettes or whatever is, is just misunderstanding the nature of the human being. Human beings all want essentially the same things. They all want microwaves and they want tasty food and they want, uh, you know, efficient transport and they don't want to sit in traffic jams. And it's got nothing to do with race color, with skin color or hair color. For me, skin color really is literally as irrelevant as eye color or hair color or height or, or a, you know, mm. waist so waist, waist to chest ratio, you know, nobody tells me that people with a higher waist to chest ratio, you know, pr- prefer sweets. Maybe they do, I don't know. It, I mean, essentially this, this focus, do you feel this focus on race uh, in 2016 is kind of just going back to where we were in 1970? Well, we never escaped it. Uh, I, as an employer, am required to racially classify people, and uh, I once filled in our forms, and I rec- called Temba Nolichungu Chinese and Joan Evans uh, Zulu and so on and so forth. I refused to fill in a race form correctly. I will not do it, so my colleagues now make sure I never see the submission we have to make. Um, the, the I cannot do it. I've got a genetic defect that stops me filling in such a form the way the official official wants me to. I would like to see every South African classify themselves in some way that uh, is not how other people looking at them might do it. I would like you to call yourself Asian Mm. and I would like you to call yourself Chinese or black or something or colored. And and when you play the game, you see, there's no race, race classification law in South Africa. And yet everyone pretends there is. And uh, I, I think, yes, we never left it. We, we continued with race classification and racism as a core feature of policy, officially recognized policy in South Africa. And we never left it, and it is now simply being intensified. And that is a, a most unfortunate reality of South Africa. And by the way, it's the sort of thing I think the Africanists and PAC would not have done. I think this is a feature of the sort of leftist, sort of pinko lefty mindset. Uh, no, go ahead. <laughs> All right. Um, okay, let's uh, just, uh, we got a little bit of time left. Uh, do you think tax is theft? Yes, I do. Um, I think uh, the... You know, whether there should be no theft at all is a separate philosophical question. If a woman is about to starve and wants to feed her child and steals, you know, some corn from a millie field or whatever, I'm, I'm, you know, personally I would say that's what's called in law de minimis non curat lex. You don't concern yourself with trivialities. And much as I'm a hardcore libertarian free market property right anarcho-capitalist, I would say that there are times when I would, for example, violate your rights. Let me immediately warn you that if I'm somewhere at a party with you and you get motherless drunk and you're about to go and drive (laughs) your car, I will forcibly take your keys away from you. And if you say afterwards I violated your rights, I'll say that's governed by, I don't know if I'm on your podcast allowed to state one of my favorite principles, which is the tough shit principle. And uh, so, yes, 
But nonetheless, taxation is, uh, by its definition, what it is, is the coercive taking of some people's wealth. Mm. And uh, I'm against that. So I think there should be no taxation. And if you want to know how that's possible, people forget that there was a time our grandparents or great-grandparents lived in a world in which there was no taxation. The idea that taxes are inevitable is a modern idea, about 120 years old, and is simply wrong. Government used to be funded by service charges. We still to this day have things like court fees and refuse removal fees and toll roads and so on. Pretty much everything the government does could be funded by fees, Mm. uh, user pays, and it should, of course, do very little. And uh, the people who can't, the indigent who can't afford, for example, court fees, well, they can be funded either by charging the people who can pay enough to cover the indigent or by charities and welfare and so on. And I'm in favor of giving. I think charity and welfare is an eminently capitalistic, free market, libertarian thing. Uh, in fact, you know, companies are not necessarily capitalist. Churches are capitalist. Clubs are capitalist. Stamp, you know, hiking groups, uh, welfare organizations, um, environmental organizations. These are all manifestations of capitalism, and all caring should be done by people who care. Tax is the least caring way of caring. Uh, It's the most obnoxious way of caring for people. And socialists who say that you should redistribute wealth through tax do not care. These are are vicious people who want to steal to support their own objectives. I would encourage people rather to support objectives by choice. And thank you. And tax is also very inefficient. The, the more we get and theft is inefficient theft is efficient for the thief but it's it's not very good at creating wealth in society so so tax just as a, as one of the forms of theft is as efficient inefficient as any other form of theft it discourages the production of wealth and rewards people who consume rather than produce wealth the, an analogy i use is that if slavery is uh, the taking of 100% of your production. Mm. What is uh, taking 50% of your production called? Mm. No, I think this is right. Um, uh, the, you know, again, slavery, like all of these things, are not binary definitions. They, you sort of morph in and out of what it really means. And uh, who was it? Robert Nozick, the philosopher at Princeton or Harvard, one of those East Coast uh, Ivy League universities uh, made the point that there are eight stages of slavery, you know, now which is really from complete liberty to to, to, to complete ownership. And uh, we, we, where along the way between the two do you start and stop calling it slavery? And he didn't answer that. He just presented the conundrum or the puzzle. And I think it's a, it's a good question is what exactly is slavery and where does it start and stop? So, Leon... You are the benevolent dictator. Well, we're just taking from the Czar podcast. Uh, they do this. <laughs> You're the benevolent dictator. You have absolute power. Um, what in three minutes? What will you do to ensure South Africa is is wealthier, more prosperous, and its people more free? Well, under the present constitution, I would apply it properly and and purposefully. So I would have an unambiguous protection of property rights, an unambiguous elimination of racial discrimination by law. Um, and that's what our section one of our constitution says is there shall be no discrimination on grounds of race or gender and I would have the rule of law by which I mean the separation of powers I would scrap all the ability of the executive to make laws by decree and regulation I would have all laws made only by the lawmaker, the legislature and I would get all of the tribunals and and ombuds and so on in the executive which are a violation of the judicial function out of it so I would have the judiciary adjudicating, the executive implementing and the legislature legislating uh, and I would do other you know I would reduce taxes reduce the role of the state privatize deregulate I would for example just terminate the this ghastly the single worst thing in in South Africa is the Eskom monopoly and apartheid dinosaur why the ANC perpetuates it in conflict with how electricity is run everywhere else in the world which is having energy markets fund the guptas Yes, yes. So I would, I would, I would implement the constitution properly and unambiguously, and I w- and that includes freedom and property rights. All right, perfect. That's a great answer. Um, unfortunately, we have to call it there. So uh, 
We're uh, very grateful that you've come on the show. Thanks so much for joining us. Um, we can find you on Twitter at Leon M. Lowe. Is that correct? That's correct, yeah. And, uh, and the Free Market Foundation at? At FMF South Africa. I That's think right. Yeah. yeah. Um, as always, Renegade Report at Renegade underscore report on Twitter. Renegade Report on Facebook. Give us a like. Uh, you know where to find Ramon and I by now, I'm sure. Uh, if you're listening to this, the next thing you should be doing is going onto iTunes and rating us, as we always say, because we deserve it. Thanks so much for joining us, and we will get you next time. Cliffcentral.com